My name is Stephen Oldham. I'm your local outreach coordinator. I work with Kevin, who you'll see next week uh, as we go into the global neighboring. But uh, we've been going through this series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And how many people are going through this in their small groups? Show about Good, good. A number of you are going through this. So this is week four. I'm glad you're enjoying that. Uh, it's been fun to kind of go through this. Greg's talked a lot about what does it mean to connect with our neighbors? How do we get involved with our neighbors? And today I get the, the privilege of talking about what is it happens when we have to deal with the weeds. We get into the weeds and get stuck with our neighbors, kind of stuck in those weeds. And it can be really kind of frustrating. I remember the first time I realized I don't like doing yard work of any kind. My dad was like, had a half an acre and he had these boulder sized Indiana Jones boulder sized tumbleweeds in the backyard. And he goes, okay, son, I want you to take down those tumbleweeds. And it looked like a forest to me of tumbleweeds. And I didn't know they could grow that big. So he gave me a shovel and a hoe and I'm like, and he's like, you know what? I, I, will, I will pay you minimum wage for however many hours you spend out there, which is a safe bet for my dad because you probably know he's only going to fork out about six to 12 bucks because I don't know if I was going to stay out there very, very long. But then I had this epiphany when I first I got down the first one, my hands are all kind of uh, struggling. I'm pulling these huge weeds out. And I thought, you know what? I need to go to college. I have just had this epiphany. <laughs> college is for me. This is not for me. Thank God people like to do this stuff. Praise God. This is not for me. I'm going that way. And I think that's part of the reason why maybe he had me do that. Other than that, he had giant tumbleweeds he wanted me to remove. But that's sometimes how it feels like when we get involved with the neighbors. All of a sudden, their messiness comes on me, and I have to, like, I'm a Christian, and I have to figure out how do I manage this guy's craziness. And then it just, like, feels like, oh, this is just horrible, and it's that miserable experience. For others, it's we are that maybe that miserable experience, and they don't really take to us that way. They look at us like we're the tumbleweeds. Um, there's a joke. I don't know how many people are familiar with Emo Phillips. He's a comedian. Uh, I'm not a stand-up comedian, but I want to read his joke to you because I think it illustrates the most when people get a little irked with us as Christians. So, okay, so Emo sees a guy on a bridge. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, well, nobody loves me. And I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. And I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic. And he said, Protestant? I said, well, me too. What franchise? He said, a Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, 1912. And I pushed him off the bridge and I said, die, heretic. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. We like, we don't want to hang out with anyone who doesn't have my particular kind of interest that I'm in and I can't associate with anyone else. And for me, it's like we're going through football season. All you are footy football players with your stats and your teams and all that. And, and I endure a lot of these football conversations. But you're like, well, I don't want to hang out with people who don't like what I like. If they don't want to talk about The Last Jedi and what the ramifications are for Luke's powers and how that affects the community, I don't know what to say to them. It's like, that's what I want to talk about. So let's just talk about what I want to talk about. And they're like, oh. But when we learn to love other people, we kind of have to learn to deal with that. And they kind of look at us with our weeds too. People are messy. And we are messy. And so when we get into problems, when we get into difficulties, we have to deal with people's messes. And for most of us, we try to kind of avoid the subject. There's a problem with that, though, and we've been going through some of these verses, is, is that this little problem with this scripture verse here. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord the, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all of your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, we're good. I can do that. Okay, the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Oh, you made it a commandment. Darn it. So frustrating. Now I, I have to figure out what do I want to do? I go into cognitive dissonance. I'm like, I need to love people because Jesus wants me to love people, but then people are horrible. So what do we do? Well, there's usually three responses people do. Some people fight against it. They've turned their neighbors into their enemies. It's like, well, you're on the wrong side of your hashtag cause, and so you're evil, and I'm bringing the wrath of God and the truth, so you're my enemy. I don't need to hang out with you. Just start vilifying. You voted for Trump. You voted for Obama. You did this. You did that. Ha ha. I'm on God's side. You're not on God's side. You're my enemy. I don't have to love you now. Good. I got past that point. Others, it's like, we just try to avoid it altogether. You see the problem? Your neighbor's like, oh my gosh, that guy is so weird. He says, hi, neighbor. You're like, well, it's our home. Look at that over there. You get, you get inside your door and you close it and you're like, oh, I'm safe. I'm inside. The garage door is closed. I got out of the way having to talk to my neighbors. And for some of us, it feels like we're navigating a minefield. Others are just, we just get paralyzed. We're like, I'm one with God and God is one with me. I don't know who this person is. I'm just in my happy place. Just go away. And these are typically the responses when we want to love somebody. And that is really kind of how we do it. And we get stuck in the weeds, dealing with people. And so at that time, we try to figure out, well, do I, who, who are my neighbors? Who are the people I really need to love? And, and start trying to manage that. And so that's really where we get into when we talk about uh, our neighbors. And so really the key verse this week is really in Luke chapter 10. It's been through the whole series. We're going to dive into it a little deeper than we've been hinting on it throughout the series. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we see uh, this parable of a religious Jewish scribe who's going to ask a question to Jesus. And he says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, many scholars don't think this question is something like, how do I become a Christian, Jesus? How do I follow you? This guy was already a religious scribe. He's already a Jewish leader. So he, he was more asking the question, something along the lines, how do, what must I do to remain in God's good graces to inherit eternal life in the end of my life? Today, as a Christian, we would maybe ask the question a little different. We say, Jesus, how do I know through my actions if I'm really going to make it to heaven in the end? Now, Jesus, being the good rabbi that he is, does what most good rabbis do, and they say, uh, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, good there, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, today, many of us are so familiar, like, my neighbor's everybody, I know everybody's my neighbor. So we're so familiar with this text, we kind of overlook the question this guy's asking. And this guy is, there was a lot of debate in that time in Israel where people were kind of struggling with who really is their neighbor. And so a lot of people kind of wanted to limit that to just the Jewish population and definitely not the Samaritans. In short, this lawyer wanted some more reasonable limitation on who it was he needed to spend his time loving. Perhaps he was most likely hoping Jesus would say something like, just prioritize your Jewish family and your brothers and your sisters and the occasional foreigner that comes into your temple to worship. That isn't at all how Jesus answered him. Jesus doesn't answer him at all that way. He tells him a story, and that's really the story that we're going to focus on today. Now, it's really easy to overlook this story. Uh, there's a guy named Augustine in, 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 in history who kind of looked at this, and he thought that the robbers were the devil and the angels, and he thought that he was beat, and he, that was the persuading him to sin, and that uh, for some reason Jericho in the story is the moon, and he had this elaborate thing that he thought the parable was. I don't want us to go too deep in the elaboration. Just look simply at the text, so let's just read it. 
Jesus replied, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, not the moon, and he, was, uh, he fell among some robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and, and he departed, leaving them half dead. Not all the way dead, but half dead. And now by chance, the priest was going down to the road, and he saw him, and he passed by the other side. The priest sees him, do-do-do, there's a guy half dead, and I'm going this way. Another guy comes along, he says, uh, yeah, I'm a Levite, going on the same road, there's a guy, he's half dead, I'm going that way. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where that he was. He saw the guy, and know this is deep, and had compassion for him. What was the difference? Compassion. So for us, compassion is one of these words. What does it mean? What does it mean? Compassion is not like I just stumble along and go, do I have compassion? Uh, I see a guy. Yep, yep, I do. I have feelings for that guy. I'm good. Compassion solved. Compassion is way more than that. It's our willful act and our understanding to get involved with our actions with love. And, and that really is difficult. And it is actually a struggle. We have to grow in this. We will never love anyone, minister effectively to anyone, or befriend anyone that we think less of. If I think less of somebody, I'm not going to want to stop and, and solve them. I have to minimize the people in my life to where I feel good enough, justified enough in my own right to kind of just ignore them. So compassion is completely the opposite. It's pushing in when it becomes messy. But it's more than that. The priests and Levites didn't just pass him by, not noticing he was lying there. It's not like they didn't see him. They had to go out of their way to avoid them. And that's really why this is the first step in value. The first step in navigating the messiness of humanity is evaluating our compassion for others. And the way we do that is by asking the simple question, who in your life right now, right in front of you as you walk through your life, are you avoiding because they're just too messy? They're just too messy. Their life's too much and hectic. There's too much of a sacrifice you'd have to make to get involved. Maybe it's that person who's in your family and that someone left they don't have a father or mother, and God is kind of irking you. If you were to focus in on him, maybe you need to fill that gap. Maybe you need to jump in and help that person. Maybe it's when we go on our spiritual retreats and we want to get all close to God and love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. He wants us to room with someone that no one wants to room with. Because on the retreat, we want to have a good experience, but that guy's annoying. He's barely a Christian. I don't want to hang out with that dude. I have to sacrifice my room space for two days to hang out with this guy and minister to them. Maybe that's who's right in front of you. And maybe it's that guy at work where he's like, nobody wants to go to lunch with him because he's a jerk. And it's a really frustrating person. And God's saying, I want you to get into someone else's messiness. I want you to hang out with that person. Who is the messy person we are overlooking? Because that's exactly what the priests and Levites doing. Maybe they were busy. Maybe they were like, I have a whole other bunch of people at the, at the temple that need to be loved. I don't, I don't have time to love everybody. I got to love this guy. I got to go. We don't know what their motivation is, but we do notice they noticed the person in front of them but weren't moved to compassion. He said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This jerk at work, he's not dying. He's not dying on the side. If he were dying on the side of the road, I would go and help him. I was like, I'm not going to just leave him to die. Is he? See, the, in the passage, it says, real quick, it says in the passage that the people are half dead, right? He was half dead. Which meant in the text that if, you, if no one gets involved in this guy's life, he's just going to die because of, the, of just the fate. Well, no one else is going to intervene. Someone had to intervene or he was going to die. The same thing is true of those around us who don't know Christ. If, if nothing happens, if no one says the truth, no one demonstrates love for them, they are going to die 
where they are at. And so we have to start looking at these things in terms of the spirituality, the ramifications of what it means. Yeah, they're probably going to be mean to you. They're going to kick against you representing a savior in their life. And a lot of people do this. The lifeguards have to kind of throw the life preserver out first to kind of have them grab it because it'll take them both down. But they don't stop rescuing people because it's difficult. So yeah, that may mean we need to make sacrifices. The question is, does that thought ever cross our minds? Have we closed off so much that we're focusing only on ourselves and not about the people that are right in front of us? That's really the first point. And just take, I encourage you this week, take that first point home. Just evaluate in your personal life, God, who in my life am I just walking past? Am I going out of my way to avoid? The second step is in navigating the messiness of humanity is realizing we too are poor in spirit. Very technical spiritual term, but it just means that we're vulnerable and we understand that we needed a savior. If anyone knew what it was like to have people shun them, it was the Samaritan. These people were taking this course, the Jews were taking this course, they didn't have to even get near a Samaritan. The amount of prejudice and hatred the Jews people had at this time was so great. Whatever the reason is, the Samaritan could not leave his, this guy on the side of the road rejected because maybe in his life he realized what it meant to be rejected and he couldn't do that. He realized what it meant to be vulnerable. We have to relate to the vulnerable, and it's hard to do in a society that so prides itself on its self-reliance, its self-sufficiency, and thinks that everyone needs to just rise up on their own bootstraps because they have things, they have freedom, they have gifts. And that may be true in certain material needs, but when it comes to spirituality, nothing can be farther from the truth. When it comes to spiritual brokenness, none of us are capable of saving ourselves. There is no such thing as a bootstrap Christian who worked hard on their faith and earned a spot into heaven. There's no such person. All of us have had to, at some point in our life, confess our weakness before God, understand that we needed a Savior, understand that we needed that, and be vulnerable before God. That, in and of ourselves, should compel us to love others even more at a greater, at a greater cost. We are helpless before God, and those that get that the most are more likely to care about others the longest. Those that get that the most understand that they can help people the longest. It gives them the endurance to stay in the fight, to keep going, because look, I know what God did for me, and I know how he loved me. I'm going to keep going to show this person how much I love them. If our compassion runs out quick, it's a sure sign that we've forgotten how long God has had to suffer with us and for us. If we're running out of compassion for other people really quickly, it's often that sheer sign that maybe we've forgotten who God is in our life. That's why it's so vital when we come here to worship God and we praise him on a Sunday morning that we get into the worship, we experience the worship because we're saying, look, I acknowledge you died for me. I'm happy. For some of us, that might be more of a somber kind of mixed joy and angst to crying and tears and happy, but others, it might be joyful and expressive because that's what we're doing. We're going through the whole week. Oh God, we made it through the week. God, you gave me another life. I love you. I care for you. You died for me. Let's celebrate that together. Our compassion runs out too quickly. If it runs out too quickly and we get real short and it's just really all about business and tight, and that's when we have to really evaluate. Take some time this week and evaluate, God, where do I need to open up? Where do I need to realize who I would be without you? So that's a, quite here in this passage, uh, 
that's really this passage here. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she is forgiven much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this is from a passage in the Bible where an adulterous woman comes to Jesus and she pours out her sins and confesses. And a bunch of Samaritan religious people and a bunch of Pharisees, uh, religious people, are standing around Jesus and they're appalled at this. And, this is, and that's what he says. I, I tell you, her sins are forgiven for many are forgiven because she's loved much, but he was forgiven little loves little. Now, does this mean that she's been, she did so much more sins that now she understands God more? No, no. All of us sins are not little. All of our sins, if we confess Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we've acknowledged that our sins caused the death of Christ. We are all complicit. The question isn't how little our sin is. All of our sins put Jesus on the cross. No matter whether they were great or small, they were put Jesus on the cross. The question is, do we acknowledge them as little or great? This woman was like, I know what I am. I know I am what I am before God. I confess that freely. Those who hold that back don't really understand what God's done for them. So keep that in mind when we talk about that. Because I really think that is really one of the evaluation points when it comes to understanding what Christ did for us. Now, it shouldn't always have to be heavy or somber. For some of us, it might make you weep. It, it gets weepy when you get into a worship song or you get to something and you're reading a passage. And it just hits you what Christ has done for you. Have that moment. But also have that moment to be joy where you actually experience that. It should compel you to love others. But my third point here is really where I want to get to. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. This is really where most people are really cognizant, I think, as Christians. We can be a little more open to compassion. We're kind of open to being nice. We might stop on the side of the road, help people. We might even cut time out for people just to kind of talk to them when I'm in my moment. But here, the third one is the most difficult. There's no such thing as compassion or love without sacrifice. So I have time. I'll, I'm kind to people. If I have time and, I have, and I'm not working on my own stuff, I, have, I can make myself available to other people. But really, it actually calls for a sacrifice. Think of the times when you were in a relationship with someone. At first, it was fun and it was joyous. And then remember the first time you had the big sacrifice. You had to do something on behalf of someone you loved. You had to go out of your way and it was painful and difficult and it wasn't comfortable for you. That's when they knew that you loved them, probably. It was when you were kids, when you were, you were a kid, you take for granted the love and the compassion your parents have for you. And then you think back when you start becoming a parent, oh my gosh, look at what my parents did for me. I didn't realize how much they sacrificed. Now I understand that they love me. Sacrifice is always necessary when it comes to showing that we love people. The text even explains this, but the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took him to, out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Can't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. See, compassion is not just a warm feeling. It's a, about other people. It's a meaningful thoughts and actions that take time towards them as well that come at great cost. And this means we may even have to sacrifice good things that we really need and we like in order to, to be considered a child of God. And, and this is really where it becomes difficult. And so these aren't my words. We can look at Luke chapter 6 verse 32 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners look at those who love them 
I love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who, who are the ungrateful and the evil? Who did Christ show kindness to that didn't deserve it at all? Who's that person? Is it, oh yeah, it's those people. It was me. God loved me when no one else loved me. And he says, you know what? Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Christ sent his son to die on your behalf. Do what he does. That's really what it means to be a follower of Christ. We want to be like Jesus? Well, this is what it requires. Are we really want to be, we're Christians, do we want to be disciples of Christ? Do we really want to follow him? Have we ever considered the cost? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? Now a great cow came to him and he said, turned to him and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brother and his sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute. Uh, I thought having a family was good. I thought, what, God's telling me to hate my family? No, no, no. He's saying, like, put your priorities in order. Me first, God first, I died for you. If you are not willing to give up all that you have for the sake of God, are you really in it for, for what he did for you? Do you really understand who he is in your life? Is he really number one? Look, I love my family. I love a lot of the people in, in my friendships, and I would do anything for them. But if I, can, if I put them before God, do I really love God, or am I really a familyist? Do I worship my family, or do I worship God first? Who's first? God says, if you're my disciples, you have to sacrifice some portion of that some portion of your own self-propagation, not just loving your own, for the sake of other people, because that's what Christ does. That's the cost. We have to make room for that. And yes, so how does this work? Well, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about your families. It doesn't mean that. The question is, are you creating enough margin in your life, enough space in your life, where you're making judgments as a family, as a group, as friends, that include people that aren't a part of that, that aren't Christian at all? So there's one person in some, of the, in, in some of the videos I was watching that decided as a family, they sat down and they talked to their son. They had him in baseball and karate and all these other things. And they said, you know what? You're being very skilled in all these things, but we would like you to stop with the baseball and, the, and wanted to talk their son through because we want to do something as a family to care for other people. I was like, wait a minute, we got to stop baseball. And, the kid was, and he, they talked to their kid and they explained to him why this is a value to us. And he understood it, and as a family, they made a decision to do an activity that would help other people instead of in the place of that time that they did to, to pursue his baseball career. Now, that sounds absurd, but the question I have to you, what is a greater thing to be, a skilled baseball player that makes tons of money or someone that understands from his parents what compassion means? What is a greater gift to give to your children than to teach them with your actions, with your mercy, with your compassion, how you love other people? Is it part of the mix when it comes to making family plans, when it comes to making sacrifices, even where you live? Like some people go like, oh, I want a good house and I want a good community and I want a good school and I want a good church. And so they'll live like 100 miles that way, come to church here, have their kids go to a school in another town and then do all these things. And they go, I don't have community. 
you can't have all those good things at one time. You may have to sacrifice where you live or a part of where you work in order to be a part of the family of Christ and in order to minister to people. And that may require some time. Is that a thought in the planning decisions for us as Christians? Because it's through sacrifice that people see that you're no different, that you are different than what everyone else is. That text says that even sinners do this. What do they mean? That means if you love your family, that makes sense. If you love your friends, that makes sense. That's what most people do. But all of a sudden you love someone that can do nothing for you? What the heck is that? Wait a minute, you went into my life, into my mess, and you didn't have to? You had all the time and resources? You even sacrificed your family time to hang out with me? Why would you do that? Why would you care at all? That's really where the love of Christ says, because it's when we don't have to do these things that they're the greatest demonstration of sacrifice, the greatest demonstration of understanding that we are following Christ's life. Therefore, we have to make room for bringing honor to God as his disciples as we get involved in the needs of other people. We need to keep that in our hearts and our minds and be diligently seeking how we can be compassionate. It's difficult. It's a skill. It's hard, and it becomes messy, and it is like pulling weeds. And I'm sorry to have to deliver it that way because it is sometimes hard to read. But I don't want to leave you here. I don't want to leave you just feeling like, oh, now I'm burdened. Now i got to go home and make a bunch of plans and change my life. Thanks a lot. I hate how God does that. I don't want to just leave you there. And some of you are actually diligently doing this. Thank God that you're doing that. May God continue to bless you as you do that. You are furthering the kingdom of heaven by your loving and getting involved, your sacrifice. And God will honor that. If we can help you in any way, we want to. So that's what I want to do here with this last point. I want to give you some comfort. Now, in your notes, there's some typos. So these are correct. So if, you, if you're of the ilk that needs to have the, everything covered off, write the ones you see on the screen down in place if they're wrong from the ones in your notes. Okay, just want to say that. Most people, when they get involved with people, look at this and they, and they say, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm not an expert. So, so, and they say, well, if I jump in and I find out it's messy, well, I'm just going to mess everything up. I say, serve from what you have. Okay? What do you have? What has God given you? What has God gifted you? You see a homeless person, you're like, I'm going to jump in and solve their homelessness. Wait a minute. I don't know how to substance abuse counselor and a mental health practitioner. I also don't know anything about finances, and I don't know anything about how to take care of someone off the streets or even convince them that they need to stop being homeless how am I supposed to love this person? Why not just talk to them? Hang out with them. If they're in your life on a regular basis and God has placed them on your neighborhood, take some time and say, hey, would you like to go to lunch? Let's just sit and talk. What's going on? Find out what their life is like. They probably have nobody do that at some portion of their life. Now, maybe some people do and they're thinking, what does this person want? But if God's placed them in your life and they're right in your path, give from what you have. So it's like, and at this point, you just, you go to them, you say, what, what has God gifted me? I'll, I'll just give that to them. But and when people go, okay, well, all I have is a blessing bag. Here, guy, I drive by. Here's a blessing bag. I throw it out the window and then drive away. I was like, that's all I have time for. That's all I have. I'm not skilled to do anything else. No, no, that's not what that means, which is why I get to the next point. Grow from where you fall short. The first thing God's going to do when you get involved in someone else's mess is show you how messy you are. You're going to find out, I'm not an expert in this at all. I don't know anything about this person's Richard Dawkins atheism fixation on, on Twitter. I don't know what that is. I don't know, I, I don't even like to read. That's really annoying. And God's like, yeah, maybe you should read stuff to love people. This is a plug for Launchpad. Launchpad plug. 
If you have problems with atheists and you're difficult, we have a class here to take. We have a, that, the whole point of the class isn't so that you get really smart at knowing how to talk to atheists and beat them up. Irrelevant. Point, the point of the class is to learn how to love people by knowing what they're stuck in so that you can reconcile them to Christ. It's just a way to love people on a deeper level. And that, yeah, that means reading. That means knowing stuff. We can't get around it. So we offer Audible. You can listen to the book on Audible that we teach in the class. But we have to grow. We have to grow. That's really what happens. God uses that to shape our character. He uses us. If you just go through our, if we, especially me, if I just go through my routine and I, I have a fun time, I don't feel any stress. I don't know if I have any problems. There's no one around me to tell me that I'm annoying because it's just me. It's great. When I get into someone's mess, I realize, oh, I'm a jerk and I don't say things nicely and I think I know all the situations I'm in. And well, I didn't know that until I talk, hung out with about six people and they told me that I don't know everything. You would never know that about yourself. God uses people, even the people that you think he can't use, like a Samaritan in this case, to teach you that you have to be more humble when you love other people. He teaches us every day. The last one is love others with others. Uh, again, this goes back to the rugged individual things. I'm going to save everybody. Oh, I'm going to love others. Uh, wait a minute. I'm all by myself. I don't know anything about this. Or maybe you think you know everything about this and maybe you need that reminder. When we love other people, we're connected to a church. Look at all the resources we have. Look at all the things that people have learned, the life experiences that you have, the things that you can offer to other people. Don't go into that situation without telling someone else from the church what's going on in your relationships with people. Join a small group just for that alone, just to sit there and say, look, I have this person in my life. I don't know how to love them. They're driving me nuts. I'm driving them nuts. I don't know what to do. Can you give me some love and advice? Remember, there's resources available to love other people. But this is also the other thing. If there are resources available and you don't ask for help, not very helpful. Also, if you ask for help and no one's willing to help you, that's not good either. As a church, what's going to be attractive to non-Christian people really is how we treat each other. If we love each other and we're supportive and they join your small group, my gosh, I didn't know people loved people this much. They're like way involved in each other's lives trying to help them out. They really care about each other. That's weird. I don't experience that at all in my life. Where would you experience something like that in the world? Other than some kind of pet sin where you all gather around and have to do it together because all of you share that affinity. This is the only place where people are actually encouraging us to ask for help, to be willing to help. This may mean you actually ask the person you're trying to reach for help because they may know something we don't. Weird. And this is, and, and finally, this is my last point and probably my strongest point in this section when it comes to just trying to encourage us to remember, don't save people. Wait, wait a minute, aren't you the local outreach coordinator? Don't save people? What do you mean don't save people? My job is not to save people. Your job is not to save people. My, my, my job is to point them to the Savior. Sometimes we jump into a situation, I'm here to save you. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. Instead, or I tell them, here's how you fix your life, and they get their finances all in order. It's like, well, where's Jesus? I, my job is to point people to the Savior. Our job is to point people to the Savior. A lot of people love this verse. They talk about, oh, I'm an ambassador for Jesus. I'm walking around, and I'm an ambassador. Oh, I'm an ambassador. They like that part, but they miss the rest of the verse. 
All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting us with the message of reconciliation. My, I'm not in the business of saving souls. I'm in the business of reconciling people to Christ. I'm in the ministry of reconciling people to Christ. That's what we're here as a church to do. I'm here to say, look, I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. We need Christ. Guess what? That may take longer than five seconds. It might not fit into my daily schedule. It may mean that I have to continue to be an ambassador. Therefore, we are an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through us, appealing to other people. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconcile, reconcile, reconcile. What is our ministry? Our ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because we're not the Savior. They desperately need a Savior and it can't be us. That's what it means, church, to be a church. To point to the one who died for our sins. To point to the one who died on our behalf so that we could love other people because that's what his children do. Aren't you happy when your children do what you do and you say, oh my gosh, they, they did what I asked them to. I love them. I love them so much. Christ has that same feeling. When you get in here and you, you love other people, God, that, those are my children. Those are my sons and daughters. They love, they sacrifice like Christ sacrificed. They get it. And that's what we really want to be, reconcilers. People reconcile people to others. It may take three years. That person may never confess. Continue loving them. Continue pouring into them. God, God is your focus. But when you love them and you care for them and you legitimately focus on their needs, a strange things happens. And it's like I said earlier, they say, you know what? That church isn't just about their membership. That church isn't about just getting me there. That church is about them going out of their way to sacrifice. Why would they do that? Why would that church sacrifice its time, its energy to care about my needs? Maybe there's something to that God that they serve. That's really the difference between us and the world, really is that we know who the Savior is and that we've taken that to heart. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, I just want to pray for that. Maybe today that's you. You're sitting here going, ah, I didn't know there were people that loved God. And maybe you're starting to realize my life is a mess. I just deal with the messiness. I don't know how to deal with this. I feel like there's something missing in my life. God's saying what's missing is him. You see, our messiness, our sin has separated us from God. And the wages of our sin is death. That means if we do nothing, we're going to die in our sins. But God in his infinite wisdom wants to reestablish that relationship and connect with us. He came down and offers us eternal life, sacrificing his son on the cross. God sent his son to die on our behalf so that we can be reconciled with him forever. So if that's you here this morning, and that's you, and you're saying, I want that salvation. As the prayer team comes forward, prayer team, will you come forward? I want, I want you to raise your hand right now. If that's you, if you know that you need to be reconciled to God today, I want you to raise your hand. Now, maybe some of you are still struggling in your seats with that. Maybe it's difficult to cross that barrier. I would say at any point, you come up to these men, even after the service and women, and ask them about Christ. They are here to talk to you and instruct you about who it is God is. They want to reconcile you to the Savior. They want to tell you what we believe. 
But even if you're just struggling in your sin, I just want to say this. Say this quick prayer in your heart. God, I know I'm messing. I know that I've sinned and I know that this is blocking me from you, God. And I confess that sin to you right now, God. I leave it there in front of you, Lord, and I accept what you did on the cross for me. And I want to accept you into my life, Lord. Be my God. Just pray that prayer right now. Maybe that isn't you. Maybe you are struggling. And look, I'm not going to come up here and talk to these people until I know and, and see that they really care about me. I challenge you to do that. Get involved with us and see if we care about you. Come talk to me. I, I want to know what your experience is like. Maybe you have questions. You, you say, no, no one's ever answered this question and no one cares about this. We care about that. Even if I have to go learn or anyone here has to go learn, we'll give you the answers. We'll, we'll talk to you through the solutions. We'll show you at least what we believe in a sincere way. So if you're struggling, fill out a blue card. Tell us what you're struggling with. Fill out, talk to us. Contact us. We want to talk to you through. We want to help you. We want to be here for you. And even if you choose not to come to this church, we want to know who you are. Now for the rest of us here who are kind of struggling with this series, maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with this text and you're looking at it going, I don't know if I do that. This is the point I want to ask you. If you're struggling right now with prioritizing your life and you feel like you haven't really prioritized loving the lost in your life in the way that would honor God and you're really struggling with that, I just want you to raise your hand. With every eye closed, just raise your hand. If you really are like, I don't know how to connect with my neighbors, I really, or, I'm st- or you're stuck in the mess and you just need some encouragement, just raise your hand. All right, I want to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for those that raise their hands. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with this, God, because it is hard. It is a discipline, God. Loving people is a discipline. It isn't warm and it gets to a point where it's not always warm and fuzzy, God. But I pray you fill in the gaps in our lives, that when people diligently make that step out, Lord, and they start loving their neighbors, that you fill in the gaps. Lord, as us as a church, let us surround those people, God. Let the compel us to get involved in their lives, to ask questions, to probe. What's going on in your situation? Lord, I pray for those people that they get connected somehow, either through a small group or talking to us, Lord. Let them not serve on their own all by themselves in some island away from the body of Christ. But more so, God, I pray for this entire church, God, that we take this seriously, Lord. That we love you so much, Lord. We know so much what you did for us. That it burns in our heart to love those people that you place in our midst. That we can't avoid them because our hearts cry out to reach them, God. That our compassion grows and that we struggle with how to love. We deal with our weaknesses and we grow closer and more like a disciple of Christ. Let that be our burning desire as a church. That when what they know about us is that we love God and sacrifice on behalf of those that are lost, that are different from us. We thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for all that you do. And we thank you for loving us and dying for us on the cross. That is why we're here, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. I just pray you continue to do the diligent work in your groups, because this is really where the work's done, is when you guys hang out with each other. Love people, jump into their lives, and just thank you for an opportunity to, to preach with you this morning. God bless you.